Well, good afternoon. You were here last week. We enjoyed a wonderful Christmas message from Tim. There'll be another one on Christmas Eve. If you have your Bibles with you this afternoon, you can open them to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be in verses 31 through 35. And... Uh, Keeping what is about to happen at the end of Matthew, Matthew 26, 27, 28, this is the reason why He came. And messages about the cross of Christ are never out of place at Christmas time because it's what He came to accomplish. And so far in chapter 26, when we come to verse 31, the Passover preparations have been made. Judas, he's been dismissed. The Last Supper has been enjoined, instituted by the Lord. And now Jesus and His disciples are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they go, the Lord initiates a conversation with them. It's not idle chit-chat. Jesus has a very definitive purpose in this conversation. He is... He is revealing to the disciples their overconfidence. You ever talk to someone who is overconfident? They think they can do something even though they really can't and everybody seems to know it except for them. For most things, the worst case scenario for being overconfident, it ends with the person being humbled or embarrassed. Right? They boast. They're very confident. They put their hand to the task and they fail and they're humiliated. Usually that's what happens when someone's overconfident. But embarrassment is far from the worst thing that can happen. There is danger in overconfidence. I mean, imagine a child who is very confident that they can take mom or dad's vehicle out on the road to get to where they want to go. Or a military leader so confident in his strategy that he can't see the obvious flaws in his plan. Or imagine a doctor so confident about the diagnosis that they've given, they cannot possibly imagine there being an alternative cause. There's danger in those confidences. Danger enough that people could be killed. And when Christians are overconfident, and when Christians are, are so sure of themselves, usually it ends very often in unnecessary suffering. It ends in sin. It ends in division and even possibly apostasy. Falling away from the faith altogether. And so for anyone to be of any use in the kingdom of God, all overconfidence, all self-reliance has to be stripped away. And that's exactly what's about to happen to these disciples. And it has to happen. They must be brought low if they are ever going to learn to feed on and be nourished by Christ. It's not a surprise that the Last Supper where they eat His body and drink His blood, where they're nourished and fed on Him, that now He reminds them not to trust in themselves, not to find strength in their own resolve, but to find strength by looking to and trusting in Him, their Master. In these verses, we are reminded of our need for Christ. 
as we see our weakness and His strength. Matthew 26, 31-35 Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of Me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the disciples said the same. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would show us where we have put our trust this afternoon. Lord, we... We like to be blind to ourselves. We don't like to see pride or spots or failures or overconfidence. But you know they're there. And I pray, Lord, that this afternoon would be a time of refining for your people where we would see our weakness so that in You we would be made strong. Thank You, Father, for Your kindness to show us these things. Thank You that it's Your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Lord, help me to preach and help us to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Very soon we're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when you consider the mission of Christ, the mission that begins at Christmas, and you consider His mission, His becoming a ransom for many, His dying for the sins of His people, His coming to save His people from their sins and to endure the curse all of those things that Christ came to do, the battle isn't fought on the cross. The battle is fought in the garden on His knees. When He gets up from that struggle, when He gets up after wrestling in prayer, the victory's already won. The terror of what was coming, preparing to face it, that was the hardest part. That's where we're headed in this passage. To Gethsemane. To the, the thing that caused the Son of God such agony, He sweat drops of blood. So the last Passover has come and gone. The Lord's Supper has been instituted. And now the hardest battle the Lord will fight is right there ahead of Him. And He and His disciples, they're marching out to meet it. That's, that's where they're going. Christ courageously at the head and all of His disciples puffing their chests out behind Him, 
albeit in vain. But that's where they're headed, to the garden. The great agony of Christ. And on the way, you're just seeing this is a glimpse of the great-heartedness of Christ. On the way, you know what Jesus is doing? He's not, he's not stuck lamenting about himself. He is instructing and strengthening his disciples by preparing them in advance for what's going to happen. And by the way, I want you to notice this and pay attention because this is one of the ways the Lord strengthens you and prepares you for the world by telling you in advance what's coming. Do you know that? That's a kind of strengthening. He tells you in His Word what will happen when you become a Christian. He tells you what will happen when you strive for godliness and holiness. He tells you what to expect from your family and from the world and even from the church. He tells you what to expect from other people who are sinners like you. And he tells you what it's going to look like to follow him. And in it all, he speaks the truth. He doesn't sugarcoat any of it, right? He warns, for instance, that when you follow him, your enemies might be those in your own household. So be ready. He warns that anyone who wants to live a godly life in this world will be persecuted. So in your mind, you think, I want to live a godly life. You're going to be persecuted. It's unavoidable if you want to be a Christian in a fallen world. You'll be mocked, maligned, hated by all for His namesake. Some of you, they will lock up and kill thinking they're doing a service to God. In this life, you will have trouble. So imagine what would happen to someone if all they ever heard about Christianity was that it's nothing but a frivolous joy and a peaceful, easy feeling. Right? Come to Christ and now I'm happy all the days. They're going to be in for a shock when reality comes knocking. That's not what the Bible says. And that's not what the experience will be. You come to Christ, you won't be happy all the days. A lot of days you might even despair of life itself like the apostles did. If you're not prepared for that, if you don't understand the trials that will come, that Christianity will bring you, you're not going to make it. You'll be disappointed. You'll be disillusioned. You'll think you've bought into a lie, right? And ultimately, fall away. Which is why Jesus says the things He does. John 16, 1. I have said all of these things to keep you from falling away. That's the goal. That's one of the reasons why these verses that we read this afternoon are here. That's why the Bible says what it says and why the Lord says what He says throughout Scripture. <clears throat> it's why we're repeatedly warned over and over again throughout the Bible and why these 11 men are told specifically, a great trial is upon them and they will fall away. A great trial is coming and they will abandon Him. And He tells them so that when it happens, they won't be destroyed. Now they'll be sad. They'll be distraught. They'll be confused. They'll be afraid. They'll be struck down. All of those things. Destroyed and forsaken? No. He even tells them He's going to go ahead of them to Galilee. He'll see them again. Sorrows will last for the night. Joy is going to come three days later. 
This method, this method for warning these disciples is by quoting Scripture. That's how he warns them. He quotes specifically from Zechariah 13, 7. Zechariah 13, 7. And the whole prophecy is verse, verses 7, 8, and 9. And it's about the Messiah. And if you were Jesus reading this passage, you wouldn't find it particularly encouraging. But it does give us a lot of insight about what's happening here on the way to the cross and why they fall away. And we're going to come back to this specific prophecy at the end. But the fourth line of Zechariah 7 through, uh, 13, 7 through 9, the fourth line is what Jesus quotes. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And what Matthew wants us to see here is the disciples' reaction to hearing that when their shepherd is struck, they'll be scattered. That's where the, the focus is. How do the disciples respond when they learn they are going to abandon their Lord and Master? Unsurprisingly, they don't take it well. There's a, a strange shift that happens from the Lord's Supper to now. The Lord's Supper, they hear, one of you is going to betray me, and they all respond with self-distrust and say, Lord, is it I? Is it I who's going to betray you? They've forgotten all about that now a few hours later. Right? They were having a good time celebrating the Passover, laughing, singing together, and now they've returned to their much-inflated opinions about themselves. And so when they are confronted with their weakness, Peter speaks up. He says, if everyone else denies you, Lord, I won't. Jesus affirms. He says, oh, yes, you will. Peter objects again, and the rest join him. Now, Peter gets a bad reputation for this, and we kind of look down our noses at him, but you know who Peter ought to remind us of at this point? You know exactly what I'm going to say. He ought to remind us of ourselves, because he's acting like you and like me. I mean, how many times you've sinned and you've said, never again, only to be quickly disappointed? And how many times have you been sure you were certain of, of a spiritual outcome? You say, I'm going to do this, and it never came. How many times have you determined and you have resolved to start doing something, start obeying something, and as soon as the moment for testing that resolve came, it evaporated like cotton candy dropped in a, in a bathtub. It's gone. It's a common experience for Christians. Sometimes you can think it's just you. It's not just you. This is an experience that all Christians are familiar with. And if, it's, if you're not experiencing this, it's not because it isn't happening. You're probably just unaware of where it is. Because every Christian struggles with the weakness of their own resolve and their own steadfastness. Even the disciples. And it's not a matter of sincerity. Right? It's a matter of weakness. They are very sincere. Peter, no doubt, was sincere. When, when he said this, he, he meant every word of it. Just like you are sincere when you say things like, never again, or from now on. You're not making those things up. In that moment, you're not lying to yourself. You mean every word. And in those moments, you are as determined as determined can be. 
It's good to be determined, right? It's good to have resolves. And it's good to care passionately and strongly about overcoming sin and advancing the kingdom and becoming more like Christ. So don't hear what I'm saying and think, well, well, I can never seem to follow through, so maybe I should just lower my expectations. And That's worse. I mean, imagine Jesus says to the disciples, I will be struck and you all fall away, and they turn around and start packing their bags and say, well, I guess I'll get ready. That's worse. Lord, help me is the right response. We ought to have high expectations of what Christ is able to do and lower expectations of ourselves. We want to strive to grow in godliness. We want to strive to put sin to death. We want to strive to advance the kingdom and be determined to do those things, but do them in the right way and don't do it overconfidently trusting in ourselves. And here in this passage, there are three reasons why bold Peter falters. He made three errors. And these reasons or these errors are probably the same for you and why sometimes you struggle with your own godly resolutions. Number one, he didn't take the Word of God seriously. He did not believe what Jesus said. And maybe you hear this and you think, I take the Word seriously. I believe it's inspired. I believe it is the Word of God and that I I believe that I should do what it says. I believe the Bible. Well, that's good and you should believe it. But do you believe it specifically for you? Do you believe that what God says about you is true? Or is it true in a general vague way or true for most people, but maybe most of the times you're an exception? You say, what do I mean? Well... Consider 1 Corinthians 10. Flee, run away from sexual immorality. You know what that means? It means there are all kinds of temptations you're going to face in this life. All the time, every hour, there will be temptations coming. And most of them, most of them, you're going to go toe-to-toe with and fight. Right? You're going you're gonna to preach to yourself. You're going to press back against a, a rising temper. Right? You're going to strive to do the right thing in this situation. But listen, you don't fight every temptation the same. This temptation mentioned in 1 Corinthians is too strong. And I don't know how many times people think that they can handle it. Right? I can go into the situation where I'll be tempted in this way. I'm strong enough, I can handle it, and it's not going to happen this time. And they go right back into the trap that's captured them time and time and time again. But you know what they don't do? Flee. They walk right into what God says they ought to run away from. Instead, they ought to be like Joseph, who at the first sign of temptation shook the coat from his back and ran out of the house. That's called not actually listening to what the Bible says about how to deal with these temptations. And all of the resolve to overcome that particular sin, so long as you don't flee from the areas and realm of temptation, all of your resolve will not accomplish anything. Or let's say you're in a relationship. You have another example. And you, you lament and you cry out to God in prayer and you're wondering why it won't get better. You're wondering why resentment seems to grow and not lessen. 
Right? And in spite of all of your resolve to make things better, they don't. You're not doing any of the things that God's called you to do in that relationship. Right? You won't forgive unless they come and make amends. You won't go to them and try to talk and work things out. You always make them come to you. Or you, uh, you, you forgive on your terms and in your way, but it's not the way that God has commanded you to forgive. It's not the way that God's forgiven you. Uh, just take this for example. It's a wife. You want God to deal with your husband. And so you do all kinds of things. You pray night and day. You're reading the Bible. You're, you're raising your children in a godly way. But the one thing you never try, the one thing you cannot bring yourself to do, is 1 Peter 3.1. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. How do people respond to this command? I'll do anything but that. Your words are your weapon. And you cannot bring yourself to do what this calls you to do. God has given you a weapon that brings Him directly into the fight. Loving, wordless submission. And by wordless, I don't mean that you don't talk. I mean you don't lash. And everybody knows the difference. But you do that. You're a wife here in this room. You do that and God will deal directly with your husband. Uh, Paul Washer has a sermon on this passage called How to Live So That God Will Kill Your Husband. It's one of his most popular sermons. But if you refuse this, if you refuse it, it doesn't matter how much you pray or how many other areas you strive to do what's right. If it's all up to you in this regard and you won't listen to His Word, God's not going to come alongside. And all of your resolve and all of your determination won't accomplish anything. Or let me give you another one. People concerned about spiritual warfare and demonic activity. And let's grant that the activity that they're concerned about is real. Right? And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but very often what people call demonic activity is something else entirely. But imagine a genuine confrontation with the demonic. What do some people do? And maybe you do this, you're certainly probably aware of it. What do they do? They start screaming things like, devil come out, and start commanding the devil and mocking him and saying all kinds of silly things. Right? I rebuke you, Satan. You've heard this. You know what the Bible says about that? It says these people are fools. It's not my words. Jude 8, 9, and 10. It says they blaspheme the angelic ones. That's not a reference to the angels. It's a reference to Satan and his demons. It says they disparage. They speak foolishly about things they do not understand. And because of how they talk, they endanger themselves. Just take a look at verse 9, or let me read it. It says, but when the archangel Michael... So it says they're talking about uh, the, the devil saying all of these silly things. But listen, when the archangel Michael, verse 9, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
So when someone starts talking about binding Satan and telling him to be gone and things like that, thinking that they have great power, they're actually making themselves an angelic laughingstock and become more susceptible to being deceived and led astray. They didn't take the word seriously. And they've opened themselves up to deception. There are many other areas in our lives like this. God tells us how to deal with a certain sin, deal with a certain relationship, deal with a spiritual battle. And we march out very confidently, but we do it under our own banner. We seek to do what, was, what is right, which is good, but we seek to do it in our own way and not His way. And we say, Lord, I have a better plan. I'm stronger than I used to be. I can do this now. Mature Christians... Mature Christians aren't those who go and fight temptations that God says run away from. Mature Christians are the ones who have reached the point where they know that they can't fight it and they run away. Second error Peter makes is he despises his brothers. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? You can almost hear Peter's thoughts. Well, maybe Matthew, that former tax collector, that lackey of the Romans, he might perhaps stoop down and to, uh, to abandon the master in his hour of affliction. It's possible that those two prior, uh, previous fishermen, John and James, they could conceivably fall into such a trap. Simon the Zealot is as likely as any to run. I wouldn't even put it past my own brother Andrew. But me, never would I sink to such a low. It's not just inflated thoughts of himself, but very low thoughts of his brothers in Christ. To bolster his own confidence, he tramples them under his feet. And in comparing himself to them, his confidence swells. But don't we sometimes think the same way? We are far more gracious with ourselves, aren't we? We are far more gracious to the person that looks back at us in the mirror and much less to those around us. And what Peter voices openly, we often do the same without even thinking. I mean, have you never, have you, have you never looked at a brother or sister and thought, well, maybe they would do this sin or that. Uh, in fact, I'm sure that they would poor them. But not me. I am so glad I've gotten past that. Have you ever thought that? You know, Galatians, Galatians warns, never think that way. Compare sin to a wild animal if it's devouring your brother and you go to help them. It says, be careful because it's just as likely to leap off of them and onto you. This sin is great in twofold. One, it forgets that a haughty spirit comes before destruction. And two, it does not love the body of Christ. It is not love when you judge the character of a person with nothing more than a suspicion. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And you say, well, the Bible says we'll know them by their fruit. Yes, you will. But you have to look at the branches first to see what's there. And the Bible also says, let every matter be established by two or more witnesses. And so at the very least, you, you have an obligation to give a person the benefit of the doubt because that's what love does. Love believes all things, hopes all things, 
until proven otherwise. And so the default disposition of a believer towards another person is charity. And if you're concerned, you're concerned about a person falling into a particular sin, you don't write that person off, you go to them. You go to them directly to try to make it right. That's Matthew 18. This comparison can be fatal to your resolve and determination. It can. You're comparing yourself to the wrong person. It makes your lack of resolve and the sin that comes from it, it makes it look like it's no big deal, right? Well, so-and-so probably does it too. It's like in prison, someone's a thief. They're a thief. They're in prison for stealing. They're confronted about it. What do they say? Yeah, well, yeah I might be here, but at least I'm not a murderer. And then you go to the murderer and confront them about it. And it's like, oh, yes, I did. I killed two people, but at least... I'm not a pedophile. And they can always find someone lower on the, on the rung to, to step up on, to make themselves look better. And we do the same thing when we compare ourselves to others and say, well, I might have fallen into temptation, but I'm doing good compared to so-and-so. The moment you say that, you're done. Your progress is over. When you compare yourself to other people, in order to justify sin or bolster your resolve, you have stopped all forward motion in the Christian life and you have begun to fall backwards. So don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to Christ and His Word. It will have a humbling effect. Third, third reason Peter's resolve failed. This is the main culprit that ruins all of our resolve and derails all of our determination. Peter was overconfident. Peter was very sure of himself. He greatly overestimated his own strength and greatly underestimated the temptation he would face. He thinks he's going to stand. He thinks that he can do it. And he joins the ranks of Goliath who faced David confidently, not knowing it would be his last battle. Or he's like Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria, boasting of the victory he would enjoy over Israel, only to be defeated in the field. Or Sennacherib, who was unable to even imagine that he couldn't conquer small, pitiful Jerusalem. And yet he lost his entire army in an hour, and when he went back to Assyria, his own two sons struck him dead. Or Nebuchadnezzar, boasting in the greatness of his kingdom, not realizing his very boast would be his downfall. They were all overconfident, self-confident. They had proud spirits. It's a downfall of many and is the reason why, first and foremost, all of your resolves and determinations fail. We forget Proverbs 16.18. Uh, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The moment you're proud, the moment a haughty spirit enters in, your foot is about to slip. But we don't believe our foot will slip in due time. We think we can go on alone and go out in our own strength. We go out in our own confidence, but it's never enough. It's like a mosquito, determined, with full resolve, to fly through Niagara Falls. It doesn't matter how much determination the little insect has. It doesn't matter how much resolve. It doesn't matter how much courage. He simply does not have the strength to do it. And the moment he does, he's swept away. 
When you determine to do anything in the Christian life, anything, the first thing you have to admit is, I am not strong enough to do this in my own strength. You want to love your spouse, be a godly parent, put sin to death, share the gospel, be a witness, grow in Christ's likeness, whatever it is, whatever your resolve, no matter how determined you are to accomplish it, no matter how confident and sincere you may be, you do not have the strength to do it. Period. And when the trial and temptation comes, if all you're equipped with is your own determination, it's like trying to top, stop, a, stop a tank with a wooden spear. Incredible resolve and courageous, but you're not going to stop it. You're going to be dead. It's not sufficient. It's not adequate for the task. Resolve is necessary, but it's not enough for the Christian life. And so, in Peter's case, and in ours, the Lord often sees fit to prove us wrong and humble us. And it's absolutely essential if you want to make it as a Christian. The chief reason why all of our resolves and determinations collapse when they're needed most is because we've gone out in our own strength. This passage serves as a warning. Don't put your trust there. Do not lean on it. Don't put any stock in it. Your own strength is like a, like a cracked cane. And when you lean on it, it's going to break and pierce you. No one should think more highly of himself than they ought. Because no one is strong enough to be a Christian. That's the warning here. Don't underestimate the power of the evil one or the strength of the temptation. Do not overestimate your ability to resist it. Don't fall into the deception of thinking we are strong and temptation is weak when the opposite is true. There are many things you are too weak to face. Matthew Henry says, those are least safe who in themselves are most secure. most secure. That's what we all need to learn. We do not have the strength to overcome even the smallest temptation. And now we reach this point in the sermon and you say, okay, well that's good and well, but what do I do? <laughs> because I want to press on in Christ. I need that strength. How do I not be overcome? If I, if I left you here, I'd only leave you halfway. Because we need to have the power of Christ available in our lives to overcome sin and unrighteousness. We need to advance. And if we don't have the ability to do it, how can we go on? Well, we do it by feeding on Christ. His power is perfected in our weakness. You know what that means? It means when we are weak and recognize it and confess it and go to Him for strength, his power is perfected in us, and we become strong through Him. Peter needed to learn this lesson. We need to learn this lesson. He needed two things before his resolve would be worth anything. He needed to be humbled, refined, by having the proud, self-reliant corners rounded off, and he needed to understand the strength of Christ that would enable him to stand. So let's... In closing, go back to Zechariah 13, where both of those things are made clear. Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. The prophet writes, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. In this passage, you see the strength of Christ. If you had a prophecy about like this given about you, oh, how we tremble you would be tremendously afraid. Do you realize what it says in the opening lines? God has drawn His sword. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies, is standing with His sword out of the scabbard and pointed. But it's not pointed against His enemies. It's against His shepherd who stands by Him. If you have a keen eye or ear, you would have noticed there's a difference between what Jesus quotes and what Zechariah says. Jesus says, quoting the Scriptures, I will strike the shepherd. Zechariah only says, the shepherd is struck. It's not a mistake. If anything, it makes it clear. Jesus is perfect and infallibly, perfectly and infallibly translating or interpreting this prophecy for us. He says, God the Son is about to be struck, but not by the Romans, and not by the guards in the temple. He is about to be struck by the Lord of hosts, His Father. It's God speaking in Zechariah 13 when He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the one who stands next to me. And you, you see the picture of what's happening. This is one, I'm sure, of many of the Scriptures rolling through the Lord's mind as He goes towards cavalry. That this is, imagine He reads this, My Father is about to run me through with the sword. It's out, it's in His hand, and it's coming for me. I can't help but be reminded of Mo, uh, Mount Moriah, where Abraham takes Isaac, his son, his only son whom he loves, up onto the mountain and prepares the sacrifice and draws the knife to slay him. But he's confident, he says, the Lord will raise him from the dead. Nevertheless, in obedience, he is about to do the most difficult thing a loving father could ever do. And in that moment, the Lord intervenes and He stops Abraham and says, Now I know you, you love me. I will provide. Here is the provision. God draws His sword and aims it against His own beloved Son. And He strikes the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. We see here just a glimpse, glorious glimpse, of the strength of Christ. His face is set like a flint towards Jerusalem. And sometimes you see people enduring terrible trials. And you wonder, how can they go through this? And you read about them sometimes. You see it. How can they keep going and put one foot in front of the other with everything that's bearing down on them? You're amazed and admire their resolve. And that's just human weakness. How much greater is the courage displayed here by the Lord? Strength of resolve to face what is coming. Strength of restraint because you could stop it at any moment. Strength of strength to lay down his life willingly. Nobody made him do it. Strength to endure the curse and the darkness and the blackness of being utterly forsaken. 
strength to endure injustice patiently with no earthly expectation of deliverance, only death. There's a strength to love in spite of the pain that he's going to endure. And, and not just on this night where he warns them, right? He is on his way to be destroyed and his concern is to warn his disciples so that they will be strengthened. That's one of the things that you, it's amazing when you read the passage. The disciples don't give Christ any hope or help or encouragement whatsoever. It's just Christ pouring himself out into them. You see the strength of sacrifice where He has already given up everything in heaven. The respect, the glory, the majesty, the praise of angels to come down and be mistreated and maligned and murdered. He came knowing He would face these things. Consider the resolve of Christ. It's a strength that is truly divine. You don't know anybody like this. The greatest person you know, the most godly individual you can think of, they do not even come close. But it's this kind of strength that's necessary and apart from which it is impossible to be a Christian. How do you get it? Humility. This passage also tells us why they'll fall away. Verse 9. It tells us why. And I don't mean why as in, well, what caused them to fall away, right? Because they were afraid or intimidated for any of those reasons. I mean this passage tells us why in the Romans 8.28 kind of way. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. This prophecy tells us what God is doing in the life of Peter and the apostles by letting them be scattered. He's refining them and testing them like silver and gold. He is purifying them and preparing them so that they will say, we are your people, and he will say, I am your God, so that they'll call upon his name. This is how Peter is refined. He is refined by humiliation. He is refined by failure. And he learns the lesson in the hardest possible way. He does exactly what he says he would never do. Hopefully most of us can learn the lesson the easy way. You read about your need of grace and the strength that comes through Christ and you humble yourself and you're safe. That's not usually the case, is it? Some of you have been getting beat up for years and years and your resolve has come to nothing. Maybe because you're not taking the word seriously. Maybe because you're comparing yourself to others. Or maybe because of self-confidence, you've never called upon the name of the Lord. And God is refining you through struggle. So how do you call upon His name? That's what they need. That's where the strength comes from. How do you do it? How do you humble yourself? How do you renounce self-confidence and draw strength from Christ? It's really simple and really clear. You do it through prayer. Look at verse 41. Verse 41. It's not in our passage next week, but look at it anyway. Jesus goes to pray. Some disciples come with Him. They fall asleep, and so he tells them, what's he tell them? He tells them, watch and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. You say, temptation to what? 
Temptation to sleep. Is that the great danger that they'll fall asleep? Right? Pray. You're, you're tired. Pray so you don't fall asleep. No. Pray so that you will not fall away. Pray so that you'll not be overwhelmed when the temptation comes. That's the temptation he's been talking about. He hasn't been warning them not to go to sleep. He's been warning them, you are about to fall away. I'm going to be struck. You're going to run. Pray that you, don't, uh, that, that you can overcome this temptation. Pray so that when I'm struck, you won't be scattered and helpless. And what do they do? They sleep. And when the trial is upon them, they turn tail and run because they would not pray. Because they would not draw spiritual strength. They were sure we won't fall away. They've said it with their own mouths. And when the time came, their resolve came to nothing. They wouldn't humble themselves before the throne of God and to find mercy and grace in the time of need. They thought they were fine. Now, they were overcome with sorrow, sure, but they were sorrowful and proud. Sorrow is not an indication of humility. The proudest people are often the most sorrowful and regretful. And they were sorrowful for Christ, but they were confident in themselves. Should have been the other way around. Despair for themselves and confidence in Him. And if your resolve is not motivated by confidence in Christ, and that proved and acquired by earnest prayer, you can be sure whatever it is you've resolved to do will never, ever prosper. All it can do is fail. But nothing is impossible for Him. So listen to His Word and do what it says. Don't have an overconfidence that says, I know the Word says this, but I'm mature now. I can handle it. That's not a mature Christian. That's an immature Christian. Have the good sense to believe what the Lord warns you about. Don't worry about others and their failures. If you're going to compare yourself to anything, compare yourself to Christ and the Word. And never go out on your own strength, but go out filled with the strength that you have drawn from nourishing yourself on Christ through prayer. Let's pray. Lord, apart from You, we can do nothing. Apart from You, we can do nothing. That's not a little something. Every good work will not be good. Every righteous endeavor will come to nothing. Or worse, only make us that much more proud. But Lord, if we humble ourselves before You, submitting to Your Word, loving one another, And going to you in prayer for the strength that you provide. This kind only comes out through prayer. Lord, then we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Let us not forget the last words. We cannot do all things. But we can through you and the strength of your resolve the strength that you make available to overcome temptation, to live the Christian life through humble trust 
and prayer. Be with us, Father. Refine us like silver and purify us like gold so that we would be able to stand when trials come, so that we would not be confident in ourselves, so that we would give all glory to your name, and that you would become greater and we would become less. Thank you that you have loved us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you for your word and your resolve. It's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen.